Today's scripture reading comes from Jonah, chapters 3, verses 1 through 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very important city, and a visit required three days. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows, God may yet relent and with compassion Turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion, and he did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. This is the word of our Lord. Last week we began a new series, and uh, it's on the book of Jonah. And uh, we've been saying that we live in a time where culture, lifestyles, values and faith are fragmented. We live in a fragmented society. And Jonah teaches us how to live in a city like Philadelphia in a fragmented society. Jonah was called to preach to the Assyrians at Nineveh, one of the most powerful empires in the world to date. And he's a prophet, which means he's religious. He's a religious man. And the Ninevites, they're irreligious. Verse 8, they say not only are they irreligious, they are violent. They are evil. The last time we left off, uh, Jonah was in the belly of a fish. The fish had swallowed him up after the storm. God rescued him through that fish. And uh, Jonah knows he's been running from God. He's been running. And in the fish, he prays. As we read in the call to worship today, he prays an amazing prayer, uh, confused prayer. There are lots of emotions in that prayer. But he concludes that salvation belongs to the Lord. And what happens is the fish vomits him out onto dry land. Jonah is rescued, and now he's back onto land again. So what's next? We're going to learn three things today. One, God's strategy. Two, Jonah's sermon. And lastly, the king's surrender. The strategy, the sermon, the surrender. They're all three of them. They're going to teach us again, about the complexities and the nuances of sin and grace. First, we're going to look at God's strategy, God's heart for the city. Uh, The first two verses are a virtual repeat of God's call. It had not changed. Chapter 1. And uh, in both cases, God calls Nineveh a great city. He says, I want you to go to Nineveh, this great city. Verse 3, the author says that Nineveh is an important city. On one hand, the word great, in the, in the Hebrew, it's a word that refers to the magnitude of the city, the size, the, the immensity, the intensity of the city. But uh, I lived in Boston uh, for 11 years. Boston is a much smaller city than Philadelphia, but it's a cosmopolitan city. It's a great city. 
To walk from one end of Boston to the other end, end to end, takes about 40 minutes, 40 minutes to an hour. It's not a very large city. A visit to Nineveh here says takes three days. It's a great city. There's not an army in the world to date, probably even now, that could surround a city that large and sack that kind of a city. But on the other hand, the word great is a double entendre. It's a sort of double entendre. On one hand, we said that it's a direct reference, a reference to the, the size and the power of the city. But the Hebrew could also mean that Nineveh is a loud city. When he says this is a great city, he's saying, Jonah, Nineveh has a loud voice, a great voice. It means it's got influence. It's got the power to shift and shape culture. It's an important city. It's a strategic city. Why? Why is it such a strategic city? History has shown that the Assyrians were a violent culture. They were cruel. They slaughtered the weak. They stepped all over people to, get, to gain conquest. They would kill all the men in a particular region, take the women, the children, and the brightest minds. They would take the elite, the professionals, the educated people in that area, and they would assimilate them into the culture while they would kill off all the men. But that means that Nineveh is characterized by the most influential, the brightest minds in the world, the most gifted minds, the most gifted people, tremendous creative talent comprised Nineveh. And it consisted then of different cultures, different lifestyles, different values, different faiths. Nineveh was a doorway to the rest of the world. It's a modern city. That's a modern city. To shape Nineveh then, is to shape the thinking of the world. And so God, he's got this tremendous heart for Nineveh. Now, even today, if you want to influence culture, you have to have a heart for the whole of the city, the great cities of the world. On one hand, cities are broken, but they're important. And they're important because they're strategic. Cities are the place where culture is to be influenced. Because people are supposed to, in the city, people are supposed to be naturally curious and open to new ideas. That's the city. So if they're influenced, they would carry that influence all over the world. The city is teeming then with ideologies, many ideologies, current ideologies, current philosophies. It's a place that's abundant with arts and culture, music and theater and scholarship and commerce, ideas, the power of ideas, the power of creativity. On one hand, it's a pluralistic city. That meant that uh, people believed in many gods. We live in a city. We have many gods. The god of wealth controls us. Knowledge controls us. The pursuit of success or family. And so we live very, very materialistic lives. It's a very decadent culture. Christians are called to bring justice in cities like this. Why? Because worldly societies, and you're going to have to think about this a little bit, worldly societies are uh, by nature, they're oppressive. Worldly societies by nature are unjust. By nature, they're violent. Now, what do I mean by that? If you don't believe in one God, if you don't believe that there's only one God, the many gods you do believe in, the many gods you do put your faith in, all the gods that we have, they're going to battle each other. They're constantly in conflict. Why? Because your desires, your desires always change. 
Your desires are oftentimes conflicting with one another. And what's the result? When you have gods and desires that are constantly in conflict and constantly changing, there's chaos. There's randomness. The world without one God by nature is conflicted and by nature is violent. If you don't believe in one God, then you have no objective basis for real truth, objective truth, objective reality. And that means if you don't believe that there's one God, then you don't believe that there's an objective basis for truth, then who are you to say what's wrong? Who are you to say what's right? Famous philosopher once said, in some cultures, we dote on our children. In other cultures, we eat them. But who are you to say one or the other is the right thing? If you don't believe in, in one God and you don't believe in objective truth or objective reality, then everything's fair game. Everything's allowable. And by nature then, nature, think about evolution. If you, if, uh, for evolutionists, natural selection assumes what? Nature favors the strong. And it's built on the strong dominating over the weak to get ahead. That means by nature, there's no moral obligation to be honest. There's no moral obligation to not cheat. There's no moral obligation to not step all over somebody else, to conquer somebody else, to get ahead. That means justice is relative. You see, verse 1, God calls Jonah. Jonah's an advisor to kings. That's his role. He's a prophet. And uh, he calls him to speak to Nineveh, and he goes to incredible lengths to get Jonah there because Jonah is so resistant. You have the storm, and then you have the fish, and then you have the three days at the bottom of the sea. And then now, you know, what happens? Why does Jonah run first? Why does Jonah run? He's angry at Nineveh. He wants violence. Jonah, Jonah he's a prophet. He's a man uh, called to God's peace in a city, and yet he wants violence. He wants these Ninevites to get exactly what they deserve. And this passage, it shows us that we oftentimes look at people in the city, the irreligious, maybe even the irreligious in this room. We often look at people in the city the way Jonah looks at them. We look at people with different lifestyles than we have, different values than the ones that we hold, and we turn our nose away from them. We turn our nose away from them, but God doesn't do that. Not God. God has tremendous compassion for the city. Mainly the lesson of Jonah is this. He says, Jonah, I know you have great gifts. You're called to preach. You're a preacher. You're gifted. But beyond your gifts, I want you to understand my heart, the heart of God. The church, visibly and I mean, the church has to have integrity inside out, has to understand the heart of God. Now, what about justice, you say? What about justice? Yes, there's correction. In order to have a society, a new culture, you have to have correction. You have to have laws. Yes, they're disciplined. Yes, uh, those things, are, uh, sometimes there are cases. There are trials, even in the church. Because that tells us that sin is never in any form acceptable. But... There's repentance. There's mercy. You know why? Because sin is forgivable. Sin is redeemable. Yes, on one hand, the city can be dangerous, tremendously dangerous. Yes, people have different values. People have different faiths. They have different philosophies. The city is full of traffic jams and pollution and noise and crime. But God is saying here, I love the city. Nineveh is a great city. It's influential. In Revelation chapter 21, you have the Apostle John. John 
uh, he writes Revelation. And in Revelation 21, towards the end of the book, he says, Then I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. All of the religions begin with the garden, paradise, and then there's a, a fall, a brokenness, and all of life afterwards, thereafter, is about a return back to restoring the garden, paradise. But not in the Bible. You don't see that in the Bible. In Revelation 21, you begin, well, first of all, in Genesis, you start with a garden, paradise. But in Revelation 21, you see a city. God gives us a city. And that means, I mean, we can go into the theology of the city. That means that, number one, everything you do has value, intrinsic value. Uh, this, what is a city? A city is where people work, where people create, build things. That's what we're going to be doing in heaven. That's what heaven is. God has a tremendous heart for the city. Metro has been planted in the city for one reason, because we believe that in the city, as hard as it is, as difficult it is to find parking, as hard as it is to survive in a city, as hard as it is to get to Metro at times, no matter where you are, if you don't embrace the city, if we're not planted here and planting churches in the city, you will never influence the city. You will never influence the culture of the city. As bright as you are, as creative as you are, that's God telling you, you're very creative, but beyond your gifts, I want you to understand my heart. That's what he's saying. Because if we can influence various cultures in the city as we are, then you shape the city as a whole. And when you shape, when you shape the city, you shape the world. That's God's strategy. Second, we see Jonah's sermon. Jonah, he's driven by anger. Jonah's driven by racial, cultural bias, religious bias. He hates Nineveh. History has been littered with violence and wars and fighting. Why? Because of race. We see that today. Because of culture. We see that today. Because of religion. We see that today. This is an age-old story. Jonah despises the Assyrians because of what? They are evil. They are cruel. They are wicked. How could you possibly, as a loving God, allow this kind of suffering? We ask that question, right? How can you possibly allow suffering and save them? How can you do that? He enters the city. Now, imagine when he enters the city, uh, imagine a Jew being called to preach to the Nazis in Berlin in the 1940s. That's Jonah. Jonah's going there. He's running from God because he didn't want to do that. He's running from God. That's absurd. Why would you call me to do that? So he runs from God. Then he rides a hurricane. Then he falls into the belly of a fish. Three days. Now he's, you know, expelled, covered in vomit, tired. He's been in the belly of a fish, bottom of the sea for three days. He's walking now. He's walking. So he's tired. He's walking through, the, through Nineveh. A visit requires three days, right? Nineveh is modern-day Iraq. Iraq is very, very hot. So you get a sense of where Jonah is. And he walks into the city, and he can't stand these Ninevites. And so what does he say? He, he musters up as much theological knowledge that he can gather together at that moment in time. And what does he say? Forty more days, and this city will be overturned. That's what he says. That's what he preaches. He walks into the city on the first day. He sees the wickedness. It's explicit because there are no gods and there are many gods here. He sees the sex and the greed and the violence and the idols. 
He's disgusted and he's resentful and he's angry. He's angry at the Assyrians and he's resentful toward God and he says, 40 more days and this will all be over. That's what he says. Now, who is Jonah? Jonah is a man of God. Jonah is a prophet. On one hand, God called him to preach judgment. But on the other hand, Jonah knows God's heart. He knows. Later on in the book, we're going to get to this next week, he says, I know you. You're compassionate. You're gracious. You're slow to anger and abounding in love. It's why the prophets, knowing that, they always preach judgment on one hand, but no matter how far their people have fallen, they always preach that there is an opportunity to be redeemed because God's love is always binding. But not Jonah. You don't see that in his sermon. Very short sermon. 40 days and the city will be overturned. In other words, I can't wait. What he's saying is, I can't wait. You guys are all laughing and partying and having a great time right now, but I can't wait because in 40 days, I'm going to get rid of all of the violence. I'm going to get rid of all the crime. I'm going to get rid of the cruelty. I'm going to get rid of the injustice. And so you better give it up. And they do. And they do. Think about what every mayor, what every president, what every prophet could only dream of in their term. Jonah should be celebrating. The next chapter should be, and there was a great, you know, parade. And, and Jonah is, is doing cartwheels. And, and everybody's celebrating because they have all returned to the Lord. But no, he wants judgment. Jonah wants the judgment. He wants the violence. In a sense, the violence of the Assyrians passed into Jonah because of his lack, his inability to love and show compassion and forgive. And so that violence has passed into him, and that's sin. Sin is deep. Sin is deep. Sin is hidden. And sin, like a seed, when it's planted in there, what happens is it just grows. It just grows, and it gets stronger and stronger. It's hidden, and think about this. This is the irony. It's hidden not because Jonah is so visibly bad. Jonah's a prophet. Jonah preached a sermon. On the outside, Jonah obeyed. I mean, he was reluctant in the beginning, right? But when that second opportunity came, he obeyed. He walked into the city. He started preaching. He did what God has called him to do. Jonah's sin is devastating, not because Jonah's so visibly bad, but because of his goodness, because of his obedience, because he's so good, because of his knowledge of God. You get that? What does this teach us about sin? One, teaches us quick things. One, sin gives us a short-term memory. You forget about God's mercy. When you're, what sin does is it mutes the extent of God's mercy in your life. God is doing 10,000 things right now for your good out of his grace and his mercy. And what sin does is it mutes it. It represses it. The fact that you've been rescued by God, that's a miracle. That be the belly of the fish expelling Jonah, that's a miracle. Jonah was supposed to die. It's rescue. And yet, such a short-term memory. Number two, sin is about, not about committing acts. You don't see Jonah committing a crime here. You don't see Jonah uh, overtly doing something so wrong because everything he says is right. It's true. Sin is about control. It's about who's in control of your life. Jonah, even in obedience, what he's trying to do is he's trying to control what God 
God's heart is. You see what I'm saying? Because if he obeys and if he just does what God is calling him to do, in a sense, God owes him. So he's just kind of waiting to see what the response will be. Right? That's what he's doing. Sin is about control. And the reason why he's so angry is because he doesn't have it. It's not because he doesn't know God's heart. In this case, it's because he does know God's heart. He knows God is merciful. And he wants God to be like him. We all, we all want that. When you've been wronged, when you've been hurt, we're like that. I'm going to explain a little further in a second. The last thing is sin always justifies. If you look at Jonah, he's so over the top, and yet he's so unrelenting. And the reason why is because he feels justified. They are evil. I am obedient. I preach a message. They will fail. They will die. It's a very, for him, very, very logical. Because he obeyed, because he has such short-term memory, because he knows, in a sense, God's heart, he can't reconcile. Jonah's having a tough time reconciling God's mercy and yet God's call to preach judgment because of his anger. He says, they're so evil. And so I have a right to be angry. And later on he says that. I do have a right to be angry. He justifies it. Now, look at how people view, uh, look at how people view others in the city. Um, it's really just another way of saying, look at how we look at one another. Uh, people who don't agree with our lifestyles people who may not uh, live the way we would want them to live. Some of us, we exploit the city. Some of us, we're like the Assyrians. The city is a source of power, a source of gifting, a source of wealth, status, satisfaction. And so like the Assyrians, we're there. We're just there for the conquest. That's what we're doing. But on the other hand, some of us, we're the opposite. We avoid the city. All costs, not just this past weekend. We avoid the city. We despise the city because it's full of people who don't agree with us. It's full of liberal people who have terrible lifestyles and they deserve judgment. And so we hate the city because it's dangerous and we hate it because it's dirty and we hate it because it's a bad influence. On the one hand, it's easy to look at the irreligious and say, look at those people. They have no morals. They're selfish people and they live very selfishly. And as a result, we said that when you live that way, you become a violent culture because it's all about getting ahead and it's all about building at the cost of other people. But what we often omit or forget, short-term memory, the religious are selfish. The religious are violent. Not because you don't have morals. It's because you do have morals. Not because you're not good. It's because you're so good you commit murder. Think about this. What do I mean by that? Every time you refuse to forgive somebody, every time you turn and look at somebody who, doesn't, who lives a life that doesn't agree with yours, and you turn your nose away from them, every time you sit with somebody, it could be a mentor, it could be a mentee, somebody who's a peer, you can sit with these people, and every time you gossip, Every time you tell them, maybe even a distortion, you're augmenting a bad quality of another person. It's not necessarily untrue, but you do that. We do that. And we do that because we're trying to embellish their character to prove our point. That's what we do. Every time you do that, number one, you're lying. But what you're really doing is you're murdering the reputation. You're being violent. You're destroying them. They have no defense. Every time you damage the reputation of your neighbor. Every time you dishonor somebody who should be honored, 
You're murdering them. That's what we're doing. The moment you say, I can't believe they did that, what are you doing? You're placing your goodness. It doesn't matter how moral or immoral. We've all said that at some point in our lives. Every single time you say, I can't believe that person did that, you're placing your goodness above their goodness. Not because you're overtly evil. You could be right. But because of your overt goodness. Friends, this is the heart of racism. At the core of it, this is the heart of racism. This is the heart of snobbiness. This is the heart of jealousy. This is the heart of uh, making comparisons about one another. Some of us, we're like the Assyrians, we said. Uh, Our self-worth is built in our career or our wealth, our credentials, our relationships, uh, building, having children. That's the Assyrians. It's why you have to be better than the next person. Why? Because your self-worth When you're building something for yourself like that, you're building a sense of worth for yourself, and it depends on you being better. So what do you have to do? Even if it comes to stepping over somebody to get ahead, you'll do it. It makes us a violent people. But other people, we find our worth and our goodness. You've grown up. You're always the good person. You're always the guy with good head on his shoulders. You're the person with a good reputation. You know what you're saying? i got to maintain that, and it's got to be better than that person. Now, we don't say that overtly, right? We say that, we think that, we believe that. The moment you say, I'm okay, the moment you say, I've lived a decent life, the moment you say, I'm looked upon pretty well, what you're saying is you're comparing yourself to other people and you're saying, I'm better. That makes you a violent person. You're stepping over another person to get ahead. And when things don't go our way, what do we do? We tend to gossip, we get jealous, we get covetous, envious, violence. Jonah He didn't want them to be forgiven. He couldn't stand the idea that God would have compassion on these people. Has he forgotten the storm? Has he forgotten the sea? Uncontrollable life? Has he forgotten the fish? And here's the point. Why is Jonah so angry? It's because he's a leader. It's because he's a leader. It's because he obeyed. Religion said this, if I obey, I obey, therefore I'm accepted by God. When you think like that, you forget the fish. You forget about where you're from. You forget the fish. That could have been yesterday. You forget the fish. You forget your rescue. You forget that you've been saved, not on the basis of your merits or your record, but on the basis of Jesus' merit and Jesus' record. You are a sinner saved by sheer grace, grace alone, but you forget short-term memory. And when you forget, it's easy then to look at other people. You've just been rescued. You know you've been rescued. You know it's by grace, and yet it's so easy to turn our nose against other people. You say, they're not worthy. They're not good. They're bad. Don't be like them. We do that all the time. We're serial murderers in this room. We like to do that regularly. It's our way of making ourselves better than the next person. We do that, don't we? The gospel teaches us that we are acceptable to God on the basis of Christ's record alone, not ours. Christ's faithfulness, not ours. Christ's commitment, not ours. When you believe that, your lifestyle, when you build your lifestyle on that, It opens up many, many possibilities, many possibilities for you to be attracted to people very, very different from you, and it's also going to make you a very winsome person. Some of you, you've been hurt by religious people, damaged by religious people, 
And so you, what do you do? You turn your nose away from them. You say, they're bad. What are you doing? You're putting your morals, your goodness above other people's goodness. I would never be like that, you say. Violence. It goes both ways. I'm not here to vilify the religious or vilify or, or let the irreligious off the hook. We're not trying to do that. At the end of the day, what we're saying is that when the gospel takes hold, it opens up many possibilities for you to come together, to be attracted to people very different from you. And it makes it very possible for other people to be attracted to you. Are people attracted to you? Not on the basis of your record, not on the basis of your looks or your career. You take all those things away. Strip all those things away. Are, they, are you a winsome person? Are you a winsome person? You become attracted to others when the gospel comes in. You become attractive to others when the gospel comes in. You know why? Because we're all saved by grace. We understand that. We're all saved by grace. And that means because you're saved by grace, yes, you, even you, if you are saved by grace, anyone can be saved by grace. You would even be able to admit that there are people in the city who don't believe in God, who don't care about God, who are running from God, who probably could be more noble than you, more moral than you. There are people in the city who are more gifted than you, more intelligent than you, maybe at least on one level wiser than you. So you have to embrace one another. You have to honor one another. It doesn't matter who. God looks at all people with tremendous dignity. Honor everyone. Not because you're the same, but because you're different. D.A. Carson, famous theologian, contemporary theologian, he says the church is made up of natural enemies. What he's saying is this. There's not a single person in this room. If you were not a believer, would you be able to sit and stand, connect and be friends with, with five people in this room other than yourself? We're here almost God is God. That's why you know it's a, a God thing. God has called us here together. Some of you, you've been scarred because of your life in the city. You've had failed relationships, failed careers, failed decisions, maybe just sheer transitions in life. And you're thinking, I'm exhausted. I, I don't have it in me to invest in other people anymore. I got nothing left in me. You got to stop being so dramatic. You got to stop being so dramatic. You're running from God. You know that? Jonah teaches us that God works in sufferers and sinners best. You know through who? Through sufferers and sinners. That means God works through the tired. God works through broken people. You have a broken family, God's going to work through that brokenness. You have a broken life, broken past, God's going to work through that past. God's going to work through that broken life. God doesn't, how many times do you see in the Bible God saying, I will honor the intelligent. I'm calling all gifted people because I need to work through you. Where have you ever seen that in Scripture? God calls the broken. God calls the humble. God calls the humble. That is the beginning of knowledge. That is the beginning of wisdom. That's what the Bible teaches us, right? Jonah preaches probably the worst presentation of the gospel ever, the worst sermon ever, but God uses it. 
and the people repent. Now, some of us, we're like Jonah. We think that we're better than other people. Now, you don't sit there and you say that. I mean, there are very few people who probably say that. But, uh, you know, one of my biggest pet peeves uh, today about modern-day seminaries is that we spend a lot, we invest a lot of time and money building up the academic credibility of of their students. And what happens is we have a whole generation and a whole culture of people who are academic scholars and probably meant for, intended for academic scholarship who think they're pastors. That's basically what we have. And so lots of people who graduate from these uh, uh, seminary institutions, they're like this. They, They smell of religion, religiosity. That's the fish. That's the vomit. You're running from God. You see that? It's the way, it comes out in the way you speak to people. It comes out in the way, the subtle condescension. And they know, right? We know. You know when you're being condescended on. You know when somebody is speaking down to you, right? With, uh, because they have something that you don't have or they think they have something you don't have. On one hand, if you think about it, the wicked person in this narrative is the king. He's the evil one in this narrative. But the moment he hears, what happens? He sees his own sin in an instant, terrible sermon, the worst sermon ever. But he's moved. He's just broken by it. It's the religious person who can't forgive. What does Jonah teach? Every, the book of Jonah teaches everybody here needs the gospel all the time. That's the lesson of the gospel. I mean, that's the lesson of the book of Jonah. That's a lesson of the gospel, too. We all need it all the time. In fact, it's oftentimes more difficult for people who are religious to get it. You know why? Because we assume we, assume we already have it, and we so often miss it. That's the tragedy. Jonah is an invitation, you know, because if God can use an angry, spiteful, sorry person like Jonah you know, he's just messed up, vomit, and, and, you know, hasn't showered in days, and he's tired, and he's in the humidity and the heat. That's a, it's a picture of us. That's what it is. And if God can speak through that, he can speak through anyone. He can speak through you. You think your life is broken? No one's more broken than Jonah. You think you're proud and arrogant? No one's more proud and arrogant than Jonah. You think you're unloving and spiteful and unforgiving? No one is more unloving and spiteful and unforgiving than Jonah. We don't really know who wrote the book of Jonah. But if you ask me, it had to be Jonah. It had to be Jonah, or at least somebody that Jonah spoke to. You know why? Because who else was there when Jonah heard the call? Twice. Who else was there to hear Jonah's uh, prayer in the fish? You think the fish wrote this story? Right? It had to have been Jonah. Who else was there to hear Jonah's sermon? You see what I'm saying? It had to have been Jonah. This is not a book to teach us, don't be like Jonah. Jonah's writing the book to say, don't be like the way I was. I was foolish. I didn't understand God's grace, but I do. You see? This is a personal testimony. It's almost a a personal testimony of repentance. He's saying, look at me. Laugh with me about me. Have you been healed in that way? What did Jonah learn? He learned surrender. That's our last point. He learned surrender. Look at the king, verses 5 to 6. If you look at the king here, perhaps one of the greatest, one of the worst sermons ever, probably the worst sermon ever, probably one of the greatest sermon responses ever. The people hear this 
and they put on sackcloth, and they're in fasting. They're in a panic. And it's such a stir that the word goes all the way up and reaches the king. And what's the king's response? This is the most powerful king in history to date. He arises, disrobes, puts on sackcloth, sits in ashes. What's going on? That's a picture. It's a metaphorical picture of repentance. The robe, when he disrobes, what he's saying is, I'm taking off my authority. I'm taking off my power. I'm giving up my wealth. The king is giving up his control and his rights and his identity. What defines him? When we repent, that's what we're doing. So we've learned about the nuances of sin, those three things. What is repentance? You're saying, I'm giving up. I'm giving up my rights. I'm giving up control. That's how it starts. This is a picture. You need to do that. The sackcloth, what he's saying is when you put on sackcloth, that meant that there was disaster. Calamity, natural, na- national ruin. In other words, the king, he's saying, I have no control over this. This is beyond me. I'm humbled. And so he puts on sackcloth. I'm poor. I'm humble. This is a wave of repentance because the entire city put on sackcloth. The ashes, you know what ashes are? You see ashes in death, especially in ancient times. So to put on ashes is to say what? I'm unclean and I'm as good as dead. So here's this king saying, I surrender, I relinquish everything. I have no control. I relinquish all. I'm broken and I'm humbled. I'm as good as dead. This is the most powerful person in the world today. And he's saying, I'm as good as dead. What scripture is teaching about here in terms of repentance is it begins. This is just the beginning of repentance, friends. It begins with a profound recognition of your sin. Psalm 51, verse 4. David, after his life just explodes, just blows up because of his great, grievous sin, he says this. This is his prayer in Psalm 51, verse 4. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. The ashes is upward brokenness. I'm consumed. I'm I'm smoke. The robe is inward brokenness. I have no covering. I have nothing to shield me anymore. I have no mediator. I have no identity. That which I can say justifies me. The sackcloth, that's outward. He's saying, I am in disaster. I am ruined. The king, he's surrendering. The king is humbled. He's sitting in the ashes. He came down. It says he came down. He's surrendering. What he's saying is, I'm letting go. It's that desire to conquer and conquer and conquer. And now I'm conquered. It's that desire to ruin and ruin and ruin. And now I'm ruined. It's that desire to just violence, 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 strong over the weak, strong over the weak, strong over the weak. I've met the strongest person in the world. And now I'm the weak one. That's what he's saying. Have you ever done that? Have you ever come to God knowing? If you come to God and just know who he is, Look at the power of God. Look at the remarkable, all-binding power of God. Look at who he is in his, we sang, majesty. Crown him. Do you see him? The king says, I've stepped on people all my life. Now I'm coming down. You know when you come down, you know what that means? You're going to get stepped on. I'm surrendering to violence. This is the beginning of repentance. He's saying, this is me. I need to reorder my life. The church is a visible representation of surrender, repentance. Martin Luther, great theologian. He says, all of life is what? 
knowledge. All of life is studying the Bible. All of life is worship. All of life is repentance, he says. All of life. You want to grow spiritually? If you feel like you've been lagging spiritually, if you feel like you've been downtrodden spiritually, why am I not getting out of this? I try, I try, I try. It's because you're trying. Repentance is, I'm helpless. It's coming to God in faith, saying, I'm helpless, and I'm coming to you. This is it. The king is saying, I've pursued power at all costs, at the cost of others, and now I'm in the face of true power. I've brought destruction, and now I'm in the face of real ruin. My life is disordered. I am, I am completely destroyed. And yet, he still didn't fully get it. Verse 8 and 9, he says, who knows? Who knows? God may withdraw his anger. God may relent. He's not really sure. In fact, the word he uses for God is the word Elohim. It's a very generic term for God. He doesn't know God personally. And so he's still kind of unsure where he stands. But what we do see is what brought him down? What began the process? It was a sign. It was the miracle of a man who lay in the belly of the sea, Sheol, for three days in the depths for three days, and now he's walking and he's a visible sign of judgment. That's what he saw. A man who literally rose from the dead. That was enough for him. That was the sign. Later on, the Assyrians, they don't really buy in. They turn back to violence. And so we're not really even sure how sincere this was. Eventually, they're overturned. They're destroyed. God fulfills his promise. But here, God holds back. He's patient. Look at the patience of God. God waits. Just a glimpse of repentance. Look at the love of God. Look at his compassion. He says, these powerful people, they think they're so powerful, I'm going to hold back. They think they're so great, I'm going to hold back. Just a glimpse of repentance was enough. It's like the love of a parent. Look at the compassion of God. You want to know how great his love is? You want to know how great his compassion is? You wonder how wide and how long and how high and how deep it is? Centuries later, there was another sign of Jonah, another king. The Pharisees, they come before Jesus. They ask for a sign from Jesus. And Jesus says, none will be given except the sign of Jonah. In other words, the very appearance of Jonah was enough. Preaching judgment, that was enough for the king. That made God very credible. It brought him down. It brought him to begin repentance. The wrath of God was relented. God held back. He temporarily eased the wickedness. But Jesus says this, I am the greater sign of Jonah. One day, my patience, I'm being patient. One day, it will come to an end. And all injustice, all oppression, you're living a wicked life, one day, all wickedness will be gone. All selfishness will be eradicated. It will be destroyed forever. All oppression will be wiped out once and for all. Jesus Christ was called to arise and preach to a wicked people. Jonah said, 40 days, the city will be overturned. Jesus Christ came not to bring judgment like Jonah, but to bear it. That's why he's greater, but to bear that judgment. Jonah was angry at the mere thought that his enemies may repent. Just at the mere thought that they would repent. Jesus Christ, you know what he did at the thought? He wept. He wept. He wept for a people that he knew would kill him. Jonah, he entered the city with nothing. 
He preached disaster. He preached violence. Your city will be destroyed. He's angry at that city. Jesus Christ, he entered the city with nothing. But when he entered, Luke chapter, Luke chapter 19, and when he draw near and saw the city, Jerusalem, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden. What he's saying is this. He's saying, don't you get it, guys? One day this city will be overturned. If you would even know this now, and yet you don't. Don't you get it? And you wept. He's just bawling. That's what he's doing. Look at the heart of Jesus. That's why he's the greater Jonah. That's why he's a more loving Jonah, a forgiving Jonah. He knew he, was, he came to die for his enemies. You will never be able to be hammered into humility. I mean, someone can just beat you down and beat you down. That's temporary. You'll fall down for a little while. You've been through that. You've been humbled at some point in your life. And it's that you just get beat down and you fall down and you say, oh, I'm broken, I'm broken. But then after you recover, that pride and that arrogance and that conceit and then the jealousy and then the gossip and then the it all comes back, doesn't it, over time? It takes longer depending on the degree and the magnitude of the brokenness. You will never be hammered into humility. You will never be hammered into repentance. That's not grace. That's not how it works. It will not last. You have to be melted into it. Your heart has to be softened into it. Ezekiel, God says, a new heart I will give you. A new heart I will give you. The king, he took off his robes, got off the throne, sat in the ashes and sackcloth. Maybe God will relent. He's saying, I am like dead. I am like a dead man. Maybe God will save. But Jesus Christ is the true king. And when he entered the city, he took off more than his robe to humble himself. He arose, one of my favorite hymns, he left his father's throne above. So free, so infinite his grace. He arose from his throne, surrendered all control, all power, all authority, all wealth, his entire life, knowing he would die. The the most powerful king in the world surrenders. And that's going to teach us to surrender. The most powerful king in the universe, the ultimate source of power, surrendering his life and his soul for us. You know, the cross is the ultimate example of the king lowering himself. Jesus Christ surrendered his robe. He was stripped naked. He didn't put on ashes to represent death. He died. And before he died, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, what he's saying is, my God has left. He has forsaken me. My life, my life is in disorder. My life is ruined. I am overturned. I am now in ruins, in disaster. And did God hold off? No, seeing Jesus humbled, seeing him surrendered, seeing him having given up, surrendered, and as dead, did God hold back? No. Jesus Christ did this so that he would be open and vulnerable so that God would pour everything, every last bit of his wrath fully onto him so that God can only pour his compassion onto you. You want to know why? What's the proof for God's compassion? It's the cross. The cross is the picture of ultimate violence, the wrath of God in full 
absorbed so that you come out clean. You come out holy. Do you get that? Do you see that? This text, the author writes, God had not done it. God had not done it. In other words, he had not finished it. On the cross, Jesus says, it is finished. God had done it through me, finished it, poured it all out, not a single drop left. He did it for us. How do you know that you deserve wrath and yet still have hope? It's because on the cross, the justice of God meets the mercy of God. And Jesus resided in the belly of the earth for three days in the depths, the lowest depths. It was, it's not just a sign that God is credible. It's a sign that our sin has been put to death once and for all on the cross. It's also a sign that God relents from his anger. He will never, he is a just God. He will never make you pay twice for the same sin. So if you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins, your sins are done, finished, and you are clean. Trust that. Trust the gospel, and you will grow a heart like God's. Because if you trust the gospel, if you see the gospel, if you see the violence on the cross for you, you will trust God. You will want a heart like God. You will be attracted to people different from you, different sexually, professionally, financially, right? People who are uh, very, very different in their lifestyle, how they get those things generally. You're not going to use your goodness to separate yourself from other people. You can actually admit to people specifically that you have sinned. You have struggles. You have, I'm not talking about general sin, okay? I'm talking about specific things, specific worries, specific anxieties, real things, weaknesses and idols, and that you're surrendering it. That's what community groups are about. That's what they're supposed to be, us leading each other to surrender because we can relate to one another because we're all weak, you see? That's the common denominator that we have. We're all sinners, We're all created, we're all sinners, we're all redeemable. Will you plunge your anger and your pride and your sin and your guilt into the grace of God so you will learn to have a repentance that sings and then you will grow a heart like God and your bitterness and your anger will die. Will you do that? I'm a pastor, I have to pray that you do do that, all right? Let's pray.